We're going to discuss a tshuva tonight of Rav Shlomo Yehuda Tabak, a great Hungarian posik from the 19th century. Rav Tabak is one of my, my favorite poskim. I, I first learned about him when I learned Choshen Mishpat. He was a great expert in Choshen Mishpat and civil law. He wrote on, uh, he wrote on all areas of halacha. He was, uh, he was a great Hungarian posik in the city of Sigit. He was, he was Hungarian, but his style is somewhat different from a lot of the other noted Hungarian poskim, Maram Shik and others. His chuvas tend to be shorter, punchier. They're often easier to understand. They're, uh, his, his logic is very clear and very straightforward. And I, I, I tend to enjoy his chuvas very much. He was a, he was a Hasidisha. He was a, uh, I don't think it shows up in his chuvas particularly, but he was a, Maybe tonight, uh, the, the, the one we'll see does have perhaps an influence of his uh, Hasidic background, but he was a, he was a Hasid, but his, his halacha is, is very clear, very, very straightforward, very, very uh, I find usually very logical and very persuasive. So we're going to see a tshuva of his, and a number of other tshuvas that he quotes, or that quote him, on, on the same general topic, the, the, the halacha we're going to discuss tonight is interesting both in terms of the halacha itself as well as for its implications for the, the perennial tension between tradition and between religious innovation, between religious creativity, the halachic pro- and the halachic process in general. The question he's dealing with has to do with synagogue architecture. There was a synagogue that was doing renovations and there was a question about how to when they rebuilt it, how they should arrange the seating. The question itself was a pretty technical one, but as we'll see, there, there were issues that opened up, there, there were issues that came up, and some of the issues are quite important, both in and of themselves, and because of what they say about the halachic process. The, 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 the primary issue is an issue of tznius, of feminine modesty, which is, or masculine modesty, we'll see, which is actually, of course, a, a third rail uh, halachic and ashkafic issue today, so, uh, with, all these, uh, with all these teasers, let's get down to discuss the actual tshuva. So, churashai, the churashai the uh, is, is a phrase from the, from the Bible. He, he called it churashai because his name was Rav Shlomo Yehuda Tabak. Shai stands for, Shin Yud stands for Shlomo Yehuda. So the question was, a kahal harotzim lasader yeshivas beisakneses, a shul that was apparently redoing some of its uh, interior arrangements, they wanted to arrange the seating, everyone in shul should face east. There were some who protested, some objected to this. They said, the, the custom in our shul is that those who sit on the Mizrach wall, the, the front of the shul, which was traditionally a a place of, uh, of honor of, uh, for, for, di- for, for, uh, for the elites, for dignified people, they typically used to face, they, they, they typically used to face the, the other direction, face, face the community, face the, face, face the rest of the shul. Pneum klapehab lamar, they would face west, they would face toward the, the rest of the shul. Moreover, v'chein hayoshvim v'kosal darom, v'tzafon, ein pnei lamizrach, zulas bamidas, yurches brachas. Similarly, those who sat on the north and the south sides of the shul, they also would not face east, they would face presumably inward, toward the Amud, toward the Bima, like, uh, like, 
like this, like we have it, in, uh, like we have it in Shulher and Shomer, that that the pews in the front at least face toward the face toward the center rather than facing toward the toward the east wall. So that was how the shul had been. That there was a that there was a, a mizrach wall which we don't have except for the today we only have it for the rabbi, but some some shuls have the president up there. But it used to be that the the Mizrach Wall was reserved for the... We'll discuss soon who sat on the Mizrach Wall, but the Mizrach Wall was for the, for the important people. And the Mizrach Wall in this shul used to face the, the rest of the congregation, and parts of the congregation faced north and south as well. And the, 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 the new arrangement would have had everyone facing east. Some people felt that this new... Uh, that this change was departing from the traditional organization of the shul, and they objected. What's the halacha? What's the issue? I mean, why is it an issue? It's aside from knee-jerk tradition or conservatism, what's the issue? So we'll see in the Churishai's analysis what the issues are. Venera, he says, provided, provided that their goal is not to copy the churches, to copy church architecture, church interior, uh, interior arrangements, he says, iser. then there's nothing wrong. There's no objection to changing the seating patterns in the shul. As it says in the Nod Behuda, he quotes a shuva in the Nod Behuda, they wanted to make a shul, Shmona Tzlos, they wanted to make a shul and octagon. Nod Behuda's shuva is interesting also. Nod Behuda was an earlier achron, a more famous achron. Nod Behuda's shuva was exactly as the Churashai describes it. They wanted to make a shul in the pattern of an octagon. So Nod Behuda is very puzzled. He says... What kind of question is this? Like, what are you asking me, he says? Why on earth shouldn't you be allowed to make an octagon? What's wrong with an octagon? Where does it say anything about, about the shape of a shul? Shuls are often square or rectangular, he says, but why on earth would you think this is a halachic issue? There's nothing in the Shulchan Aruch about it, he says. There's nothing in, uh, there's nothing in the Rishonim, Bishnea Talmudim, in the Talmud Bavli, Talmud Yerushalmi. There's nothing about the shape of a shul. So then he has a whole discussion, proving that there's nothing wrong with making octagonal shuls now, Behuda, in general, was an Akron who was famous for, for taking the position that everything has to be rooted in the Talmud. He didn't have much patience for uh, extra-Talmudic traditions and minhagim. When he was forced to grapple with them, like the traditions of Behuda Chassid and others, he, he grumbles, kind of. He says it's so hard to, to discuss from a, using traditional halachic methods, things that aren't well-sourced in the Talmud. He was very much a... Uh, he, he was very much a... Uh, he, uh, a, uh, he, 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 he was a purist. He wanted everything to have a clear source in the Talmud. So when someone asked him about what shape does a shul have to be, he thought the question was crazy. I mean, why should it be an issue? Why on, show me what halacha you can point to that it should be an issue. Why is there any question at all about the shape of the shul? However, he does end with, a, with one, uh, one important proviso. After his discussion proving that you can make a shul any shape you want, he says, he says there's certainly no isra mikra din. However, he says... On the other hand, I'm also wondering, he says, why are you doing this, he says? Since when do people make shuls octagons? Today, modern architecture, we have all kinds of uh, interesting and creative ways to design buildings. But Yudu was traditional, he was old-fashioned. Why would someone make a shul an octagon, he says? It's uh, such a bizarre thing to do. I suspect, he says, maybe they've seen buildings of uh, mansions of the nobles, he says, or, or other types of structures, and they want to copy the, the Gentiles, the, they want to copy the, the aristocracy, he says. That, he thinks, is not appropriate. In Golos, he says, to start, uh, to start copying the, way, the ways of the nations, the ways of the elites, not so clear what's bothering him. The, the, 
Some posts can be discussed in the context of Shul's Chukus Agayim, like the Churashai himself did. If you want to copy the Gentiles or the churches, that's obviously halachically problematic. But Buda doesn't seem to be worried about that. He doesn't seem to be worried about uh, the Isra of Chukus Agayim. He seems to worry about flaunting our, our wealth in, in, in the presence of the, of the non-Jews, keeping a low profile. We shouldn't, uh, we shouldn't be making bold and audacious statements and making our synagogue stick, stick out as eye-catching structures. All that, he says, in Golos is wrong. He quotes a Pasuk in Hosea. The Pasuk says, Vayishkach Yisrael asoseyu vayiven hechalos, the Jews forgot their creator and built, uh, built uh, grand structures. Therefore, he says, at the end of the day, conservatism should be our watchword. We shouldn't be mechadesh things, he says, from the old minhagim. Certainly in our generation, he says, so al there's nothing wrong with making an octagonal shul. In general, he says, we, could, we should be conservative. We should not be bold and audacious and, and showy, he says. So he wouldn't recommend doing something as uh, dramatic as this. But Mikra it's fine. And therefore, he says, if you're doing it for a good reason, because the, the, it, it can fit more people and for whatever reason it's more convenient, he says, then there's no Easter at all. But uh, so basically, in terms of halacha, there's nothing to talk about, he says. In terms of hashkafa, in terms of public policy, he, he doesn't recommend doing it uh, to, to be showy and to be uh, dramatic and, uh, and to make a statement. But if it's just for convenience and practical reasons, then he thinks it's fine. So getting back to the Shurashai, he says, see no to be Yehuda, there's no real issue for there's no real issue for what shape a shul should be. There are no halachas really that govern Judaism has halachas that govern a lot of things, but basically he says there, there are no real halachas that say what the interior of a shul should look like, and therefore there's no problem if they, for rearranging the, the pews or the seats in the shul to, uh, to all face forward. Then he says, on the contrary, he thinks that he thinks that having all the men face forward, face east, is actually a good idea. He thinks it's actually a superior arrangement to the old one where people faced in different directions. Why? So he says, and now he says something very controversial. He says, he thinks it's a good idea that the, that the men should all face forward in order that the women should not be able to, should not be able to, to stare at or to, uh, to ogle the men. I'm not sure exactly where the women, but he, but he, he spells it out. He says that the, he spells out that the, that the, that, 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 that he, the other post, can spell out that, that, that the women were in the balcony, that, that they would be in a place where they would be, they would be able to see the men. And he thinks that that is, he, he says, Adra, but Kivan Dezras Nashim, he says, is Bamarav, is on the west, or Batsaf and Vidaram, or on the south or the north. Dezras Nashim, which was, I'm not sure, I'm not exactly sure if it was a balcony or if it was a room to the side, but he says it, 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 was, it was off-center, it was either in the back of the shul, in the... In the, in the west, like, like, like the back balcony we have at Shomre, or it was on the Tzafon or Durham, I guess, like, I guess like we have the, the downstairs, Ezra Nashim on the, which would be on the Durham side, but it would be on the, on the right side of the Shul al So he says, we should arrange the men so that the women don't get a good look, I, I assume he means don't get a good look at the men's faces, no matter what direction you put the men, the women can see them presumably, but presumably he means they shouldn't see the men's faces. Why is it a bad idea for the women to see the men, the men, the men's faces? So he brings a midrash that's brought in the Yalka Shimoni. The Yalka Shimoni is going on a, this is a somewhat provocative and perhaps controversial midrash, 
The Midrash is going on a story in Sefer Shmuel. When Shaul is appointed to be the king, so Hashem tells Shmuel, you're going to appoint Shaul to be the king, and then, he, and then Shaul loses his donkeys, and he goes to seek Shmuel. Hashem tells Shmuel, I'm going to send Shaul to you, you'll find him, and you'll make him the king. In the meantime, Shaul is, is motivated to go looking for Shmuel. So Shaul, tells, Shaul says, we're going to go, he tells his, his aide, we're going to go find Shmuel. So they go to the city where Shmuel lived, and they're, they're approaching the city, and they find girls. Girls are going out to draw water. Like Rivka was going out to draw water, and so on. So the Shoal and his assistant uh, ask the girls, Hayesh Bazeharoa, is the seer, is Shmuel Hanavi, is he here? Is he in the city? What do they answer? They answered as follows. This was their answer. Yesh, Yesh, he is here. He's here in front of you in the city. Maherata, go quickly now. Now, they told him to rush. Then they went into a whole speech. They said, Shmuel just got to the city. Because there's a major communal sacrifice today. When you enter the city, you'll find him before he ascends to the, the platform to bring the to bring the Bama, to bring the carbon, Lechel, Kilo Yochelham, nobody's going to eat among the people, Ad Boa, until he comes, Kihu Yivarech Hazevach, he's going to make a blessing on the, on the carbon, Achrekein Yochel Akruim, after that, those who are invited are going to eat, Va'ata, now, Aluk, Yosu, Kayom, Timtono, so you're going to find him. They gave a rather long speech in answer to a simple question, Ishmuel Hanavi here. The answer was yes, you can find him over there. They went on and on, uh, uh, prattling, so to speak, about the about uh, what, what the whole story was with Shmuel and his affairs in the city. So the Midrash picks up on this. The Midrash says, Kol kach lama. Why do they have so much to say in answer to a relatively simple question? So the Mara brings several explanations. The Midrash brings several explanations. First, Nashim Dabrani is saying, women are talkative. Second, Shmuel says, Shmuel says, Shoal was an extremely handsome man. Shoal was well worth looking at. So they were so enjoying just standing, the girls were so enjoying themselves standing in his presence and looking at him that they went on and on, talking and talking to keep him there so they could enjoy a few more moments of his company. Third shot, uh, a uh, theological, historical shot, the Ein Malchus Nagas Bechaverta Filukum Lonema. God had designated a certain time for Shoal's monarchy to begin. God wanted Shoal to arrive at exactly the right time. Shoal was running a little bit early, so God delayed him by having the girls talk in order that he should arrive at the city at the theologically precise moment. So the Midrash says that the pshat we're interested in is the middle pshat, that the girls were, the girls were, uh, were so, en- so enraptured by, by, Shoal, by, by Shoal's figure that they, that they delayed him, they kept talking so they could spend a few more moments gazing at his uh, handsome countenance. So then the Midrash brings another version of this debate, of this discussion. It says, the girls were mabitos binoyev shalshol avlai yisveyos, they just couldn't get enough of him, of how, of how, of how good-looking he was, divir Rabbi Yehuda. Rabbi Yossi says, can't say that, unacceptable. Imkein asisa binos Yisrael kizonos. You're, 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 you're making them, you're, you're, you're accusing them of engaging in very immoral conduct and very lewd conduct to sit there and stare at a man. Just like a man is not allowed to stare and ogle a woman, someone who's not his wife, someone who he has no business, uh, has no business staring at. A 
woman symmetrically has uh, no business gazing at a man who's not hers. So, unacceptable. He does not want to hear that the pious daughters of Israel would have engaged in such improprieties. Ella, so the other pshat, that it wasn't time for Shaul's monarchy to begin. So the Midrash brings in Machlokas, Shmuel, Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Yossi, whether it is permitted and acceptable for a woman to stare at a man. A man is not allowed to stare at a woman. Is a woman allowed to stare at a man? That is, seems to be a machlokas. How do we? Paskin says it's Shurashai. Paskin like Rabbi Yossi. Rabbi Yossi Nimukoimo. There's a general principle that we Paskin like Rabbi Yossi when, he's, when he debates other Chachamim in the Mishnah and the Brisa and so on. Rabbi Yossi implies that everyone agrees that it's inappropriate, that even Rabbi Yehuda, who says, doesn't want to learn the Pasuk like that, that, that the, Rabbi Yehuda says, okay, it, it, uh, it's the wrong thing to do, but we find people do it, and they, they, we, we live in a world where not everyone does exactly what they're supposed to do. But everyone agrees he wants to say that this is us, or, therefore, says the Shura Shai, women are not supposed to be staring at men, and therefore the shul should be designed in such a way that the women cannot stare at the men. Again, so I, I, I suspect he means that if they see the backs of their heads or their, their, their profile view, that's not so bad. But certainly, he says, that the, the, in, in his opinion, it is ideal for a shul to be configured in such a way that the women are una- that will not be able to stare at the men. Now, the Churashai acknowledges that this was never the custom. The Churashai acknowledges that shuls were frequently built in such ways that women could stare at the men. Hagami says, He concedes this is not the minhag. So in halacha we often say that minhag is mavatl halacha, minhag determines what's, what's right and what's wrong. Says the Shura Shai, he makes a very provocative counter-argument. He brings a Gemara in Chulin. The Gemara in Chulin is discussing the, one, of the great, uh, one of the great deeds of King Chizkiah, Chizkiah HaMelech, he pulverized the Nechash Nechoshes, the serpent, the, the copper serpent made by Moshe Rabbeinu in Parshas Chukas. So centuries later, hundreds and hundreds of years later, Chizkiah finally destroyed it. The, the Jews had preserved it as a, as a relic, as, a, as an artifact for many centuries. It had become an idol. The Jews had begun to worship it. They worshipped many idols during the, the, the Bayes Rishon. They had begun to worship the copper servant, offer its sacrifices and incense, I think, so Chizkiah said, enough, and he pulverized this thing because it was a temptation and a distraction from the service of Hashem. So the Gemara, so the Gemara challenges that. The Gemara says, really? Chizkiah took upon himself to destroy the serpent? Chizkiah had great predecessors who were also, who were also uh, great crusaders against the Vodazara. It's an unfortunate term, crusaders in this context, but who were also great... Uh, great opponents of Avodah who, who eradicated all the Avodah they could find, Asa, Yoshafat, they also could have chosen to, to destroy the serpent. And they didn't. Moshe Mo, well, so in Moshe Rabbeinu's time, so the question is, we don't, really, we don't really know how far back they had begun to worship it. So the Gemara seems to be assuming that in Asa and Yoshafat's time, they were worshiping it. How does the Gemara know that? I'm not sure. Moshe Rabbeinu himself, right, obviously, either it was essential at that time because of God's command, the need to help the people who were afflicted by the serpents, or, uh, or they weren't worshipping it yet, but yeah. But the Mara brings Asin Yoshafat, Asin Yoshafat, his righteous predecessors, did not destroy it. Some of the Rishonim say they didn't destroy it because it was a holy artifact. It was made by Moshe Rabbeinu, so they, they, they didn't have the temerity to destroy something which was the, the handiwork of the lawgiver himself. And Chizki said, no, I'm going to do it. Uh, I'm, this is the right thing to do, and I'm going to do it. So the Gemara says, really? Uh, what makes you better and frummer and smarter and... Uh, than your righteous predecessors. 
So the Gemara says, yes. The Gemara says, you see from here that sometimes that's the way things work. Sometimes we see, we see the principle that sometimes the fact that a certain religious innovation wasn't made by earlier generations doesn't automatically, uh, doesn't automatically rule it out, uh, doesn't automatically put it outside the realm of possibility. Sometimes that's the way things work. There can be a noble and appropriate religious act that even though it wasn't done by earlier generations, it's the right thing to do, and the way God set up history, the way, the way God, the way the Rishonim and Akronim explained, the way, not that they deliberately didn't do it, Pashtus, uh, for this, to give them a chance to do it, but that's the way the world works, that's the way God runs the world, that sometimes God wants later generations to have the chance to, uh, you know, to take actions involving religious creativity and innovation. Now, obviously, the, this is uh, a very provocative doctrine, and this really flies in the face of the whole notion of minhag. Anytime we want to do anything that's against the minhag, we could say, okay, well, the minhag was to be lenient. So when do you say, uh, how can you possibly disagree with, uh, with earlier generations? And when do we say, no, we'll return to this point soon. We're not going to have a real answer. But the, the Churashai, at least in this case, fails. This is an appropriate... This is an appropriate uh, instance to invoke Our ancestors gave us a chance to improve things and the fact that earlier shuls didn't configure the shuls in such a way that would avoid women staring at men. <coughs> so it's a chance for us to improve things even though it was not the minute, he says. This is our chance to make improvements and we should do it. He goes on. He brings, he says, from Chazal, we see they weren't concerned about this. We see that when they set up the Beis HaMikdash, the Azara, for the Simchas Beis HaShueva, they set things up that the men were on the floor, and the women were on a balcony, and the women would look down and see the men. And it was, it was set up that way deliberately, they set it up like that, so the women would be able to see the men. So what happened to my concern that women should not be able to, to stare at men? We need complete segregation. He says, no, ain't done an Efsher, Misha'i Efsher. There's a rule in the Talmud that that uh, what, what's necessary, what, what's unavoidable, is a dispensation sometimes. So here also he says there was, the, 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 the crowds were so great that there was really no way to arrange things in any other way. To bar women entirely from the Simchas Beis HaShueva was impossible, he says. And therefore, even though, yes, it was not ideal, he says it was not ideal to have the women be able to, uh, to, to, to look full on at the men, there was no other way to arrange the. There was no other way to arrange things, he says, and that's why they allowed it, even though it's less than ideal, and so on. Then he 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 concludes his tshuva. He concludes his tshuva by saying that in in Shulchan Aruch, in Shulchan Aruch, in, in the laws of Basic Nessus, it says that the way the way the shuls should be arranged is that everyone faces Darin Kodesh, everyone faces toward the front of the shul. And this Kanim, the, the elders, the distinguished members of the congregation, they face, like the rabbi sometimes does, they face toward the people. Says the Shurashai, the implication is that everyone faces east, toward the Heichel, toward the Aron Kodesh. Everyone faces east, except for this Kanim, the rabbi, whoever it is, except for, the, for, for, for certain, certain specific people. Achshavi says, Nishtana Seder, it used to be that this Kanim sat in the, the places of honor against the Mizrach wall. Today we do things differently, he says. Today, they, today we sell the places in the shuls, the Achronim say. People get to buy seats wherever they want. And we sell the Mizrach seats uh, as well. So therefore the Mizrach seats were not reserved for this Canaan. The Mizrach seats were still sold to the highest bidder, like other seats were, he says. 
he says, but in general, the, the rule should be only the Zakanim should face the, the people. He doesn't explain why, but he says only the Zakanim should face the people. Everyone else in the shul should face the front. Certainly, he says, you see there's no objection to having everyone, uh, everyone face the front. There's no mitzvah to have it, uh, people facing different directions. Therefore, that's his conclusion, that point number one, there's no, there's no problem with arranging the shul that everyone faces front. Point number two, he says, you know, the, the, that you know, tradition doesn't matter here, the way it used to be done, there, 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 there's, no, there's no actual rule of how things have to be done. At the end of the chuba, he says, if anything, we find it was customary that everyone did face the front, except for this kingdom. But in general, that is the way shuls were arranged, he says. Shuls should be arranged, shuls are arranged. And the most important point to the chuva, perhaps, the most controversial point is that a shul should ideally be set up in such a way that the women should not be able to have direct visual access at the men, certainly not at their faces, and therefore it's actually good, he says, to have the men all face forward, which will eliminate the, the problem of women looking at men. Oh, Rabbi Grossman? Yes? Okay. Uh, Aaron Seif is here. Just, uh, so there's no even a notion that if you put women on the same floor and have an Ezra's notion with a high mechitza, that this problem will be avoided? Yeah, so, so again, so I, I don't know exactly what his Ezra's notion looked like, whether there was a high mechitza, whether it was a balcony, same floor, different floor. I, I don't, uh, we'll see a little bit more from some of the Akronim about what their Ezra's notions used to look like, but the, but it, it, exactly, again, his chuvas tend to be a little terse. The, the positive side is that they are easy to read and easy to digest. The negative side is that he leaves out details. He often is not as colorful and leaves out some of the, some of the details that might have helped us understand a little bit better what we were talking about. Yeah, so, 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 so I don't know exactly whether they could have found a solution which would have satisfied both these issues. He may have been taking certain things for granted about how synagogues were constructed in terms of balconies or whatever, but the, the, the only thing he tells us really is that, is that the Adrath Nashim was, was typically, he says, either on the west, meaning in the back of the shul, or on the south or the north, meaning it was on one of the sides of the shul, whether that means it was a balcony or whether that means it was just a... Same floor, separated by a partition. I'm, I'm not exactly sure. Thank you. So, over the next century, the, so the Shurashai was from the mid to the mid, was to the early to mid uh, 19th century to about the end of the 19th century. He was born in he was born in 1832. He died in 1907. So, for the next century and a half, Postkim have vigorously debated whether he is right or not about this point that it's not appropriate for women to look at men and therefore it's not and therefore a shul should ideally be designed in such a way that the women cannot look at the men his basic source his basic source for this his 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 only source is this midrash the alkachimoni on shmuel it's noteworthy that this is not brought in in the talmud that, that if anything the talmud seems to indicate otherwise in, in that sugya that he himself brought of the of the simchas pesa the Mishnah, Gemara, and Sukkah indicate that women did look at the men. And he's, he basically is madcha that because of the, uh, based on the, the Midrash in, in the Al-Kachimod. So that takes us to a classic question, which is how much weight do Midrashim have in Halacha? How much weight do extra Talmudic sources have? Even though Yalkut is a pretty mainstream and standard Midrash, it's not in the Talmud, and the Talmud, if anything, indicates otherwise. So how much weight should we give a source like that? So perhaps the most uh, perhaps the most uh, prominent and noteworthy opponent of the Churashai is an unlikely figure. That is Rav Yoelish of Satmer, the Divra Yoel, Rav Yoel Teitelbaum of Satmer, not a man who is known for his uh, sympathy with modern ways, 
not a man who I think is generally known as a uh, staunch feminist and a creature of the 21st century. As a matter of fact, the, the, his comments in rebuttal of the Chura Shai occur in one of his most famous tshuvas. They occur as a kind of, uh, as a kind of secondary point in a very, very, one of the most famous tshuvas of the 20th century. He wrote against Ramosha. Ramosha wrote that a five-foot mechitza or so is fine, even if heads can be seen over the top, and even if there's some visual access, it's fine, as long as it's a full-blown wall that separates people and doesn't let them mingle. That was good enough. The Satmar, the Satmar, the Satmarov was famously opposed to that and, and, and actually wanted a much uh, more stringent mechitza. In the course of that tshuva, the Satmarov brings this churashai as being very machmer also on the Nina Mechitza, but the churashai he thinks is wrong, and, and, and he spends a couple of pages arguing that the churashai has gone too far and that he's being too machmer about the, the notion of Mechitza. So the Satmarov writes, he says, he says, the, look in the tshuva's churashai, who has this great chumra that the shul should be configured in such a way that women can't see men. It is, this is, this is a bridge too far, this is, a, uh, this is much too strict, he says. And his basic problem is, Minog, he says, that we showed him that the earlier generations, Shurashai himself admits this was never how shuls were done. Shuls were never carefully constructed to prevent women from being able to look at the men, he says. And there were Gedolim, Rishonim, Kedoshim, he says, who built shuls this way. It was, it was never done this way, he says, to prevent them from looking at the men. And you have the Gemara, the Mishnah, the Simchas Pesah Shueva, where it says explicitly the women were able to look at the men. What about the Midrash that he brings? What about this Midrash that, that says that it's a terrible thing? It's uh, Zonos, it's a terrible thing for women to look at men. So he says, it's not in the Shas. He says it, uh, that many posts can say that, that uh, things not in Shas have no halachic value. He says that Chazal compiled the Shas, and they were very careful to include everything, Brysis, everything that was relevant to halacha. If they didn't print if they didn't put something in, it's not halacha. He admits that other posts can disagree. I'm not actually sure who, who, who he has in mind who, who take this absolute rule that nothing outside the Shas has any halachic value. The, the Rambam, the, the, the posts came all the time, bring Yerushalmis and bring Toseftas and bring uh, all kinds of stuff that's not on the Shas. I, I, don't know, I don't know who holds, who takes such an extreme position. He himself acknowledges that, yes, that there are posts can we say that we, that, that we do learn from Brises, from Midrashim, even from Agados, even if they're not on the Shas, as long as they don't contradict the Shas, he says. But everyone agrees, he says, that Shas Bavli is the authoritative, the, 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 the most reliable and authoritative source that we have in Halacha, and certainly anything that contradicts the Shas Bavli has to give way and has to be either dismissed or reconciled with Shas Bavli, he says. Therefore, since he fails the Mishnah, and since he fails that the Mishnah and the, the Sugi and Sukkah makes it clear that, the, that there was no problem in the base of Mikdash for women to look at the men. Therefore, he says, clearly this Midrash is not Lahalacha. This Midrash, he, he acknowledges the Midrash does say what the Shurashai says, but as a matter of Halacha, he says it's not normative. In terms of normative Halacha, we follow the Bavli. Bavli doesn't give us any hint of such an objection of women looking at men. Bavli has a lot to say about men looking at women, but nothing to say about women looking at men. On the contrary, he says, the, 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 whole, the, whole, the whole discussion of the Beis HaMikdash and the Azara and the Simchat Beis HaShoeva strongly indicates that women are allowed to look at men, and therefore, he says, this Midrash has to be dismissed as not being Lahalach. Now, he... Rabbi, yes? So, let's talk about uh, some other example of women looking at men um, that is uh, fairly well known. Uh, as an example that is not unusual when um, 
um, bring uh, bringing the um, uh, the um, the chariot um, the Mishkan and he's dancing. Um, his wife uh, um, calls him a bit of a fool for dancing naked, so to speak, in front of the, wo the woman, and he, he he has nothing good to say about it except to say uh, for the that that he would do it again, and and she was punished for it. So the question in my mind here is: Well, here's an example of the king, uh, and why would it be a problem for somebody to look at somebody doing something like that? If you're looking, if looks are the issue, we have examples of people looking also. So I, I'm not sure. I have to read the story. You're talking about the story of Michal and David when, when they brought the Aaron. Right. So, so I'm not sure over there if the issue was women looking at him. She was allowed to look at him because she was his wife. I'm not sure. Her issue seems to have been that it was disgraceful for the king. It wasn't. It was beneath the dignity of the office. And his answer also. His answer was that uh, I'm not going to. I'm not going to. I'm not going to stand on my own dignity. When, when honoring the Lord is, the, is, 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 is called for, he says, and then my, my own honor should be set aside when it comes to, when it comes to showing uh, honor and glorifying God. The issue there, I think, was not an issue of Kniuth primarily. They, they, they did mention something about the maidservants, but uh, the issue, I think, had more to do with kavod and, uh, and disgrace and disrespecting his office of king as opposed versus the, the value of honoring God. But yeah, I don't, I don't think the issue was about, uh, I don't think the primary issue was about, about women gazing at him, although I'd have to read the circum a little more carefully. Well, I mean, women are not criticized for looking at the king. Uh, so, uh, so that's, I mean, if, if we're looking at examples of, of the genders looking at each other. Yeah, okay, so, the, 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 so, so again, the, as the Shura Shai himself explains, the in the midrash itself, it's machlokus whether the girls looked at looked at Shaul or were, were there to deliberately gazing at Shaul or not. And the and the Shurashai explains that that the, that the Rabbi Yudu says if they did, he says you know even though it's not the right thing to do, but many people do that. It's not something that people are, are the people are always so meticulous about. It's not something that people are always as as strict about as we would like. So so the point is that. He, he's, he, he's, he's agreeing that in the real world this happens, but it's something that, that should be avoided. So, so, so again, we, we have to look at specific stories and see whether the implication is that everyone in the story behaved uh, with, with full propriety, or perhaps there were aspects of their conduct that, uh, that, that, that could have done with improvement. But yeah, but you're right. It, 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 it is interesting to consider other stories, if we can find other stories in Tanakh or Chazal, and see if they sh and see if they shed light on this question, and that that's the Dark Shaltar. If we find other places, we can bring them up and see if they uh, if they serve as 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 good precedents in one direction or another. Uh, Rabbi, yes. Question. Uh, so we've just been this, uh, assuming uh, that you know everything that was said by you know with the story of Shaul and those uh, and the you know and those women who uh, was is. Is it automatically translatable, you know, transferable to the context of a shul or to the base of mikdash? Um, it's not clear to me that that should necessarily be the be the case. On the one hand, when people are in shul or going to the simchas base of shuleva, they're not just you know chatting in the street, right? They're they're there for religious inspiration. On the other hand, you might, uh, but you know, sort of from the opposite direction, you might be looking desire a higher level of Kedusha. Right, so, 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 so Lewis is pointing out, we're actually going to see both these points in the next couple of sources, Lewis is pointing out that we could argue that the shul is either more lenient or more strict, we can argue that 
more lenient because since people's minds are are occupied, hopefully in spiritual pursuits, they're they're less likely to uh, have impure thoughts and to engage in improper behavior. On the other hand, maybe we have a higher standard for shul. So we'll we'll, we'll see momentarily. Both these faras are going to be mentioned by the poskim. So, so the. So, so the, the Satmarovs, after, after he argues at length that extra Talmudic sources have either zero or limited weight, certainly not against the, the clear thrust of the, of the Bavli itself, then he quotes what the Shurashai said, that the Shurashai himself acknowledges that the Bavli seems to imply, the Mishnah of the Gemara seems to imply that women are allowed to look at men. Shurashai says, uh, it's not ideal, but uh, it was the was Efshur, he says, that there, there was no other way to arrange things than to put the women anywhere without them being able to look at the men. He says, Ain varm He says, what do you mean there was no other way? He says, just uh, the Chavim were in charge, they made the rules, so don't let women come in the first place, he says. The, 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 the Chavim were perfectly capable of denying access to anybody who, uh, who didn't belong there, so don't let the women come at all. I, I was actually very amused by, 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 by such a kind of uh, extremist, or he, he just took for granted that there was no need for women to come and they could have just been uh, denied entry. He himself backs down from this, though, and a few lines later he says, he says, I concede. The Churashai may have, a, may have a point. He says, it wasn't possible, he says. It was important for them to be there, he says. It was important for them to see the great avodah of the Simchas Pesach Shoeva, of the Nisach itself, or the the Simchi says it was a very important thing to see. He says it was, it was, it was a very important thing. Women had to see it also, he says. So, uh, so, so that's what the Churashai means. The Churashai means it was important for women, for women to come for religious reasons, and therefore once they had to come, there, there, was no other, there was no place else to put them except for some place where they'd be able to stare at the men. That's, you see, he concedes that, that that's what the Churashai means. I would also add uh, another point. There, there, there's an old tradition of somewhat, uh, somewhat um, puzzling and uh, peculiar minhagim about women not going to shul. Certain times, w- w- women staying home from shul, w- w- women weren't allowed in shul uh, based on you know, different points of their biological cycle. We don't really do this today much, but, uh, but for hundreds of years, this was a very strong minhag in parts of Kal Yisrael that women wouldn't always attend shul due to concerns of Tumah and Tara. Again, the Bavli makes it clear, Divrei Torah, not Makabal Tumah, and Tumah doesn't prevent you from coming to Shul. But uh, there was an old minhag of uh, somewhat obscure origins that was quite, uh, quite widely practiced, that women didn't go to Shul many, often. However, the Trumas Adeshin brings, one of the exceptions is, around the Yom Naraim, women did go to Shul, and he says it would have been a great Agmas Nefesh for them not to come. The women really wanted to go to Shul, either for religious reasons, maybe for social reasons, but you know, maybe for religious reasons. So we find this idea that women really wanted to go to Shul, Women really wanted to be part of the community, wanted to attend services, wanted to engage in religious devotion along with the men, in a b'tzibur, whatever, in, in a synagogue, whatever it was. So we definitely find this idea in the halacha that uh, any, any halachic or other type of reason to deny women access to, to, you know, to religious experiences, to communal experiences, has to be balanced against the fact that you have to be fair to the women as well, and it has to be, we don't want to cause them agmas nefesh, we, 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 we don't want to make them feel bad. So that that's really what the Churashai is saying also, and as, as the Debrayolim self acknowledges, that just, just telling women, sorry, you can't come because, because we have religious scruples about it, is not a solution. That, that whatever our religious scruples are, they have to be balanced against the, the need to be fair to the women, to, to give them fair opportunities as well. 
And therefore, the, the Churishai says, and the, the Satmarov you know, concedes somewhat, that it's reasonable to say that even if it's not ideal to put women someplace where they can stare at the men, but if the only alternative is to deny them entry entirely, that's, that's, not, that, that's not an alternative. That, that's, that's not possible. And therefore, they have to come even... Again, we wouldn't allow this if there was an outright isser, if, if it was black and white usser, you know, we wouldn't do it. But, but if it's something that's just a preference, it's better not to do it, apparently, then we can say that the need for them to come to shul over, overpowers that, and uh, we let them come to shul, even if we're going to put them, we let them come to the base of Mikdash, even if we're going to put them in a, uh, even if we're going to put them in a place where they're going to see the men. Then the Samarov deals with, uh, with the Churashai's invocation of the Gemara and Hulin, that even if earlier generations didn't do something, we can say, this is the right thing to do, and we're going to do it. Even though we always talk about how powerful Minhag is, we don't want to be Motzi Laz, Aldaris Rishonim. But sometimes we have the opposite principle. Sometimes we say, Our ancestors have left room for us to make improvements. There is such a thing as improvements. Judaism is not perfect yet. There, 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 there is still room for, for innovation, for positive innovation. The Churashai invokes that principle. Satmarov is very, very unhappy with this. He says, absolutely not, a, not an analogy. He says, he says, reductio ad absurdum. He says, he says that the Gemara's examples of Makam include examples of Kula. The Gemara has another example over there dealing with the laws of Tuma and Tara about how Rebbe, Yehuda Anasi, did something. He issued a certain lenient ruling that his ancestors had been strict about a certain matter, the, certain, the status of a certain place in terms of Tuma and Tara, that his ancestors had been strict, and he issued a lenient ruling, so they asked him, your ancestors were strict, and you're going to go and be lenient? He said, no. There's room for improvement. There's room for change. And he brings a story of Chizkiah. That was Lakula, the Satmarov says. So do you really think that any postsake from any generation is allowed to get up and say, the earlier generations were wrong, the Shach was wrong, the Shulchan Aruch is wrong, the Rashba is wrong, the Rambam is wrong, I know better, he can't do that. He says, Allah doesn't work like that. Torah doesn't, we have a tremendous respect for Gedolim of earlier generations. You can't just get up and say, I know better, I'm smarter, and, uh, and even, though they, they, even though they did it one way, I'm going to do it differently. Of course not. This is, of course, a major topic of discussion. Later Achronim do disagree with earlier Achronim sometimes. Ramosha disagreed with earlier Achronim. The Vilna Gon disagreed with earlier Achronim, even Rishonim. So it's not black and white. There were always Achronim who were bold and, and, and brave and were willing to challenge and debate earlier, earlier Doris. There were also those who were much more reluctant to do that. And that's a, very, that's a, that's a tremendous topic, and uh, one for another day. But the Satmarov says, whatever the Gemara and Chulun means, it doesn't mean that you can simply challenge the, the Torah giants of earlier generations and say, you know better. He says that the entire Gemara and Chulun is limited to cases where, uh, where you're dealing with people who are on the same level, people who are allowed to disagree, Tanaim versus other Tanaim, what King, King Chizkia versus King Asa, they were basically in the same league. They, they, they were basically on the same level, even though one, one of them were earlier and one of them were later. That's where we invoke this. The, one of them was earlier, one was later. That's where we invoke this doctrine of Makhmanikoli Liz Gadar. But, uh, but, but someone, vis a vis someone who's in a different, on a different level entirely, an Akron against a much earlier Akron who he would never have the disagree with, I, I, I'm not going to disagree with the Shach. Uh, I'm not going to disagree with the Rashbri. He says, I'm not going to come, you can't come along and say, if it's Gedolia Poskim from earlier generations whose authority is unquestioned, 
and you have no right to challenge them. Again, what does that mean, no right to challenge them? The, the general rule is you do have the right to disagree with the earlier poskim. So that, that's a topic, that, that's a very complex and difficult topic when we say that uh, contemporary poskim have the right to challenge poskim of centuries earlier when we say they don't have the right to do it. But the Satmarov here takes the conservative position and says that since, since surely the Churashai would concede that he's not going to start challenging the, certainly not the consensus view of earlier posts. He's not going to say, although all the Gedolim of 200 years ago said this was Mutter, I think it's Osir. He's not going to do that. The Makhmanichalol is Gader is not a response to that, he says. Therefore, the Churashai is wrong. Yasme de Yasme, where we of this generation are so, uh, are so much smaller, so much less. Uh, we, we have some, we're of such lesser stature as, as, as Torah scholars in the earlier generations. We have no business challenging them and saying they're wrong and saying we know better and we found a Midrash and so on, he says. Khalila, he says, to, to, to do such things, he says, certainly to be lenient, but even to be strict, he says, it's not appropriate. Therefore, he thinks that Shurashai is wrong and to, 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 to start uh, to innovate even such a stringency, even making up new Chumras is wrong, he says. If the Chumrah was clearly something that is against the Minhag, against the Misorah of earlier generations, he says, we have no business doing it, and therefore, again, he, he goes on at length explaining why it's, uh, even the Midrash maybe is not compelling and so on, but uh, a key part of his argument is that A, it's only a Midrash, it's not on the Bavli, B, the Bavli strongly implies otherwise, C, it was not the Minhag for a long time, and therefore we have no business making up such a new Chumrah. Other acronym. Defend the Churashai, also Hasidim, the Klosenberger Rav, the, the Divrayatsev. In the Divrayatsev, the Klosenberger Rav argues at length that the Churashai is correct and that women should not be looking at men. And he says that the. He says, what, you, have, you have authoritative early sources. You have a Midrash, you have a comment of the Sefer Hasidim, which we're not getting into tonight. There are authoritative black and white early sources that say that women should not be looking at men. Certainly in our generation, where Tznias is more of a problem, he says, we shouldn't be looking for leniencies on Tznias, we should be strict, he says. Chas v'shalom l'hakel women should not be looking at men. Now what about traditional synagogue architecture? Bahar b'mekomos, he says, in many places, they didn't even have an Ezra's Nashim, he says. Shul didn't have Ezra's Nashim. So again, we find, going back to Rishonim, we find they had Ezra's Nashim. Towards the Deshim we mentioned earlier, there was such a thing as women going to Shul. It was, uh, maybe some places didn't, but... The basic institution is not a modern one, but he says many places didn't have Ezra's Nashas, and even the, ones, even the ones that did, he says, they were designed in such a way women couldn't see. He says in Tzanz, where he comes from, in the European city of Tzanz, he says Ezra's Nashim was on a different floor, and it wasn't uh, like we have it with a nice balcony that you can look over a, wa- a, a waist-high railing or whatever it is and look over, he says. It was a different floor, and it was separated by the floor, he says. It was a hole in the floor. I, th- I believe Revival Cohen Shul in Brooklyn for many years had, a, had, a, had an arrangement like that where there was just a kind of uh, thing in the floor that you can look down through to see, hear and see. There was a floor in the shul, he says, that, that through that they could hear the davening. They certainly couldn't sit there and look, he says. And even, he says, in o- other cities that had shuls with windows there, there were windows separating, that opening between the Ezra's Nashim and the shul. He says the windows were covered, he says. They were covered with a kind of latticework, he says, like a lot of shuls have today, they were covered with, uh, with some kind of lattice that, that allows sound to pass through, and maybe see a little bit, he says, but not, not, not really get a good look at the men, he says. They had to have that, he says, because in, uh, because in shuls that had that on the ground floor, he says, 
then, then it's a two-way street. If the women could see the men, the men could see the women as well. So certainly they didn't have open windows. They didn't have places where men could... You know, today, many shuls do have Ezra's notions where the women can see the men, following Ramosha, following lenient opinion, that as long as the machitza is 10 tvachim high or 5 feet high or whatever it is, even if there's visual contact, that's okay. But for the Klosenberger of, that's unthinkable, he says. That certainly, he says, the men, he says, certainly the men can't see the women, he says. Everyone's going to agree to that. So certainly they were done in ways where the windows were closed and then blocked with these lattices and so on. And once they were done that way, the women couldn't see the men either, he says. And, uh, and also, he says, this is the point Lewis made before, in Shul, he says, back then, certainly they came to Davin, they didn't come to, to see and be seen. They didn't come Leistakel, he says. And the men also were pious. So they engaged in prayer, and they weren't guilty of Hirher, he says. So he, he seems to be arguing that this was in earlier days where people were more pure and pious and focused on their prayers, unlike today, where, where, where the shul maybe is more of a social scene and so on. Akalpanam, he says, he, he makes this point that if, if, we, if we know they come to Davin, then that actually uh, is, makes it less of an issue because we know they're focused on the davening and not on the, not on the staring at each other, he says. But he argues that the Shurashai is correct and that women are not allowed to look at men and that shul should not be designed in such a way that women can see the men. On the other hand, Ravadi Yosef, Ravadi Yosef strongly argues that the Shurashai is wrong. He strongly supports the position of the Satmarov that women are allowed to look at men, and it's perfectly okay to design shuls where women can see the men. It's really a kind of an incidental point in a, in a tshuva not related to this, but he says, we don't paskin like this midrash, he says, similar to the divrei yoel, the midrash is not la'alacha, he says, based on other sources in the Gemara, he says, the midrash is not that we don't paskin like that, he says, he brings us out Marav in a, in, in a different work, in, a, in, in his, in his uh, Sefer Taras Yom Tov, also disagrees with the Shurashai, says we're not machmer for this, and again, the argument from tradition, he says, traditionally we were never machmer on this, the Rishonim didn't do this, that we're not choshish for this, he says, and uh, again, because not brought on the Gemara, the same idea, he brings a, he brings an, uh, he brings a, a very curious Gemara, a very provocative Gemara, the Gemara in Baruch says, Rabbi Yochanan, Rabbi Yochanan was very handsome, he would sit outside the mikvah, so the women, when they left the mikvah, they would look at him, and they would that somehow would affect their, their, their psyche somehow, and that would induce them to have handsome children like him. So he sat deliberately in a place that women coming out of the mikvah could stare at him. So you see, there's nothing wrong with women looking at men. Other Gemaras, he says, and then he says, so he, he very much supports the position of the Satmarav, and he says that Shurashai is wrong, the Midrash is the Loka and it's against the Minog, and therefore we are not choshish for this. And, and then he writes that the... He, then he brings Ramanasha Klein, yet another tube, another Hasidish. He brings Ramanasha Klein, who, uh, who, who defends the Churashai and apparently criticizes what... Uh, criticizes Yabiyah Omer. Yabiyah Omer was brought in the, in the anthology Otsar Aposkim, an encyclopedic work on Shulchan Aruch Evan Ezer. So Ramanasha Klein saw the Otsar Aposkim, saw Ravavadia's work, and attacked him and criticized him. As uh, Ravavadia points out in a pointed footnote, he says, it's all very well for Ramanasha Klein to attack me. I'm, I'm some kind of Svardik rabbi who wears a funny hat in Israel. He's, I mean, he doesn't say all that, but he says, he forgot the Satmarav. The Satmarav, he says, is also Docha the Churashai. You want to start criticizing me, you should at least acknowledge that the Satmarav, whose credentials as a fire-breathing Hasidish, traditional as you could possibly desire, 
are, uh, are impeccable, and he also holds like that. He also holds the Shura Shai is wrong. So don't just, don't just focus on what I said. Uh, deal with the Sad Marav, he says. So he discusses Rav Menashe Klein's Dichuyim uh, of the Gemaras and so on, he says. But the Eindvar Mechuvar, Rabbi says, Rav Menashe Klein is wrong. And he says that, he argues against it, he says, Ha'ikr is like I and the Sad Marav hold. The Iker is that we, uh, the Iker is that it's mutter, that we don't pass it like the Midrash, that there's nothing wrong with women looking at men, and that it's perfectly okay to the, for, it's perfectly okay for women, to, for shuls to be designed in such a way that women can see the men. Not that men can see the women necessarily, but that women can see the men, if that's, however that's possible. The Sefer Hasidim, he says, is, uh, I, I believe the Chumrah of the Sefer Hasidim was women, sh- that the same prohibition of Kol Isha, that a man shouldn't hear a woman sing, applies in reverse, that a woman shouldn't hear a man sing. So that, that supports this whole sheet of the Churashai, that these things are two-way streets, that, uh, that, these, that these restrictions of Tanius apply in both directions. Hepacha says, it's against the Minag, Minag HaPashot, the women in Ezra's Nashim, he says, Shomo Selarina Velatfila, they come to Shul, they hear the singing, he says, Mipi Chazanim, they hear the Chazanim, Umesharim, the singers, Ben Imus Kol, women come to Shul, they listen to the beautiful singing, Nobody is, is, nobody is concerned about the Sefer Hasidim. It's not Lahalacha, he says. So the Shurashai is not Lahalacha. The Midrash is not Lahalacha. The Sefer Hasidim is not Lahalacha. He says that the Iker is that these particular Isurim of Tneus do not apply to women. They're allowed to look at men. They're allowed to listen to men sing. That's the Minhag. That was always the Minhag. These, uh, these, so on the one hand, where the Klosenberger Rav argues that we have clear early sources, the Midrash, Sefer Hasidim, that are strict, Ravadia says they're outlier sources, they aren't brought in the, Shul- they aren't brought in the Gemara, they aren't brought in the Shulchan Aruch, they, they seem to contradict other sources in the Bavli, they're not classic halachic sources, Yalkut Shimoni and Sefer Hasidim, and therefore we have a major machlokus, we have the, the Churashai, the Klosenberger, Rav Menashe Klein, all three Hasidim, as being strict about this, on the other hand, we have the Divrei Yoel, the Sat Marav, who's lenient, and we have Ravadi who's lenient, and certainly the Minog is to be lenient. The, the, certainly the Minog, even, even the even the even the Shurashai agrees the Minog is to be lenient. Although the Klosenberger tries to argue the Minog was actually not so lenient, but certainly in much of the world the Minog was to be lenient, and certainly I think the the you know, the, 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 the the dominant custom is like uh, is the, certainly in, in our circles in, in, in non Hasidic circles the dominant custom is to be more lenient. And we, 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 don't, we don't prohibit women from listening to men sing, and we don't prohibit women from looking at men, even in ways that we would prohibit men from looking at women.